out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician Jason Faulkner, one-time member of... Jellyfish, also the three o'clock and the Greys, but has also gone on to a, um, yes, a solo career as well as producing lots of other uh, musicians and bands, as you will find out in this interview. Just a word up. So this is going to be the first part because um, towards the end of this particular um, scene, which just takes about an hour, he then has to leave. But we have part two, which I will put up as well. But anyway, look, this is part one. And um, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to the exciting uh, subject that we were talking about, which was kind of appreciating music probably more after the event than at the time, because we often take things for granted and then we appreciate them a bit later for various reasons. Anyway, this was Jason's response to that. Jason, it's over to you. I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, we're just so flooded with stuff sort of in the moment. And then, um, I mean, I personally, my entire listening experience um, for the last, I mean, for pretty much my whole life has been looking back. Yes. Um, I, I find myself very rarely enthralled with something that's happening in the moment because it's just, it's sort of being, it's being put in my face by something. And that something is usually the, the music business or, or uh, some sort of, you know, um, cultural uh, gatekeeper like uh, Pitchfork or any of those things. And it's just like, like as soon as you're telling me I'm supposed to like something, I'm not interested. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And it's kind of like this inherent like rebellion. Um, and I, I like to find things on my own. I mean, my 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 origins of of being a fan of music um, begin with with me. Um, digging through the, the LP bins and the used LP bins um, at the record shops when I was a teenager and literally finding something that I, you know, the cover has to interest me. Um, and then I look and see who's involved. And if I don't recognize any of the musicians, I would even buy something because of where it was recorded. I was that like nerdy. Um, and I found that for instance, every single thing that was recorded at a studio in England called Space Word. Right. Which was the Soft Boys, um, even the Sad Lovers and Giants recorded there. Oh, um, yes. All, all sorts of stuff that was interesting to me that I discovered because it was recorded at Space Word. Because I found that, man, every single thing recorded there just was like so upfront and present and big and um, just just dynamic sounding and I, so i just like and in fact when the internet was fairly new at least for me back in the late 90s early 2000s i i reached out i became obsessed with talking to um i'm forgetting his name right now but the guy that <coughs> that produced and engineered most of that stuff at space word uh, uh di- something kemp um Ooh. and i found him and he's and at the time he had Space Word was operating out of Barcelona. He had moved to Spain. Right. And I was just like, I just was like, man, I have to tell you, like every single thing you recorded just blows my mind. And what was your signal chain? All this nerdy stuff I was asking him. <laughs> and he was, he was very delightful. He was, he was very, um, uh, you know, he was very excited that, that some 
kid from America was reaching out to him to talk to him about Spaceward Studios. So, um, well, but yeah, I love those days, you know, just like finding stuff on my own. Um, yes. And, so... that, and that goes, that goes into the modern age right now for me. As soon as somebody, as soon as I get an email from somebody saying, so-and-so wants you to like their page, I'm like, delete. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that makes me an asshole or what, but I just, uh, I have to find it on my own. Yes, absolutely. That is, that is the whole, the key to life. So what was your, I mean, it's always interesting. What was that kind of formative moment that happened when one's often some, you know, in the region of like nine, ten, you know, you see something on top of the pops or you hear something on the radio, something triggers that moment and you think, oh my God, that's amazing. I wonder what that yeah. was. What was yeah, that for well, you? I, I, have a, I have a couple of those. I mean, my so I grew up. Um, my dad is an artist. He's a fine artist. And he was a professor uh, at, at a university out here, and um, and he was an abstract painter. And um, he, um, you know, so his taste in music was fairly um, interesting. Um, he would he, there was a lot of there was a lot of jazz, but then there was also as far as the rock stuff. The very first records I ever remember hearing uh, that made an indelible imprint on my brain. Were, were the Piper of the Gates of Dawn um, and uh, DeCapo by Love right. had that record, which which yes. scared me to death. I just the picture of those guys in those ruins and Arthur Lee's got smoke coming out of his mouth, and I'm just like, what is happening with this crew of people right here? And it was a multiracial band. It was very interesting, and um, he also had um, you know Procol Harum. Um, there was no Beatles, oddly enough, but the Beatles were. So omnipresent on the radio, it didn't. It doesn't matter. I, I got into Beatles because of that. But um, and then the first record I bought with my own money, which I say my own money, it was money that my parents gave me to buy something at a little. There would be like a little bookmobile that would mm. come to my to my elementary school. Elementary school here is like um, five to ten years old, and so probably around eight or nine. I told my parents, I said, the bookmobile is coming and they have some records and I really want to buy the Beach Boys. And so they gave me a little, like, you know, 50 cents or whatever to, to buy. And I bought um, Endless Summer, that, um, that 70s uh, compilation of the early stuff, right. and, which, has, which has, you know, In My Room and uh, The Warmth of the Sun, which is still one of my favorite songs ever made. Yes. Um, and uh, Surfer Girl and all that great stuff. And, um, and uh, so that was... And then, of course, I was I was just surrounded by sort of FM rock radio at the time. So it was, you know, uh, Boston and uh, Led Zeppelin. I would hear Led Zeppelin. I I also kind of scared me, but I loved it. Yes. I loved like Cashmere. When Cashmere would come on, I just lost my mind. And um, but then the like zeitgeist moment for me was yeah around eleven, um, ten maybe. Um, the very first images of punk um, that would come on the television, like they, I mean, it was punk was a was a was a menace worldwide, um, according to the, you know the the sort of status quo. Um, but here it was, you know, it was a little bit later that it that it was in the news. So it wasn't as early as the Pistols in '77 and all that. It was um, it was about '79 when it was like you know, what, what is this threat to, uh, to, to, to society as we know it? And it would be on like the, the evening news and they would show cops arresting punk rockers. 
And I remember seeing these guys pushed up against a wall with their hands up, just exactly like the first Clash record, right? Yes. <laughs> and they looked like the Clash. And, um, and I was like, I want some of that right there. Like, those people are so interesting to me. It's like they're sort of walking art and, um, and kind of disturbing art at the same time, but it makes you think. And um, I just, man, I just fell in love with that. So my band went for my, my band that I, I, you know, I had some kids that lived on the street with me and, and, um, and we started a band, you know, when I, as young as when I was in like, uh, uh, sixth grade or something. So that's very young. And, um, we were doing, you know, the cars and, and, um, we were trying to play like, uh, you know, br another brick in the wall and all that stuff and <laughs> failing miserably. But, uh, and then all of a sudden from one summer, we went from that to, uh, black flag, right. <laughs> the, germs, the germs, uh, circle jerks, um, you know, uh, Minutemen, all of this like LA kind of hardcore that was being played on a radio station here called K rock and DJed by the, the, lovely Rodney Bingenheimer right the and famous Rodney who's still going the famous Rodney who yes who I you know subsequently have become friends with and I see him every once in a while but I um yeah as a kid Rodney's show like um totally uh gal like changed my life and sort of galvanized my uh my my direction I was heading in and um so then uh then what happened was I met this weird kid at my the first year of high school so my very first, uh, so the, the first month I was in high school, um, the guys in my band were all two years older than me. So they were, you know, uh, second year before graduating. And I was in my very first year of, of the four years of high school. And <clears throat> the school, I remember the school day was ending and one of the guys runs up to me and goes, Hey man, we're playing tomorrow morning. We're playing like there's a, a pep rally, they call it. And it's where the whole school misses their first period of school and all goes to the gymnasium and there's like, you know, cheerleaders going, we're going to kill them this year. And, and then, you know, jocks running out. And then there was a band yes <laughs> and the band was my band, but I didn't even know about it until like the day before. And the songs we were playing that summer, we had graduated from the punk stuff the year earlier. And now we were playing like sort of early MTV hits like who can it be now by the by the um minute work and we played stray cat strut which which was like which was like a brand new song at the time it was Excellent. like a very new new single and i just uh, we loved it and, but but here's the thing you know there's no internet and there was i didn't even have the records um so i didn't have so i was just kind of phonetically mumbling through these songs i didn't know the words and um some of the words are easier to understand than others but i also just yeah so so I went home and I just listened to those two songs. Oh, and we did Mirror in the Bathroom by the English Beat. Nice. Yeah, Classic. it was it was insane. And what happened after, during that show was um, the breaks in um, in Stray Cat Strut. We goes, I walk right by with my tail in the air. Those breaks, and I was the singer. Every single girl stood up and screamed like the Beatles. Nice. It, it was. It was just one of these, like, well, you have got to be kidding. I'm looking around the other guys that were all just looking at each other, like, are you kidding me? Because <laughs> we were we were nerdy, and um, we we weren't like the cool kids at all. We were like the nerdy guys that could actually play. Like, so was that cool a bit? Guys. Yeah, was that a bit more like uh, they might be giants, sort of college rock 
kind of vibe to you or was it not quite like that um as far as, far as what what do you mean kind of that kind of um studious clever kind of muse, musos who well, who kind well, of now, i suppose we call it college rock and but they weren't scruffy kids were they they were quite smart yeah, yeah exactly yeah they were like kind of intellectuals but i mean at this point we're only doing covers so we didn't have really our own identity. I, I, I wasn't even really writing that many songs yet. Um, and so I would say we were just a cover band that were just kind of nerdy. Um, I mean, we thought we were cool, but you know, the guy played a saxophone. So that instantly makes you nerdy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we had a saxophone player in the band. Let's put it that way. Um, but um, so then what happened after that, I was like literally the biggest star in my school. And, um, and for, for, it was crazy. And, and all these older guys are coming up to me, like these cool guys, you know, like kind of punk guys are like, Hey man, that was pretty good. You know, like my girlfriend thinks you're cute, you little shit, you know, like watch it, watch your step. Right. And I'm like, and I'm like, Oh my God. Um, uh, and then this guy came up to me wearing a, like a milkman jumpsuit and was like, your band sucks, man. Um, you should join my band. And he gave me a cassette. This is a very funny story. He gave me a blank white cassette and he said, listen to my, listen to this and tell me if you want to be in my band, your band's, your band's lame. Right. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like the nerve of this guy. Right. I go home. I put this cassette in my little tiny boom box and I had my head completely d- dismantled. Um, it, it was the most arresting music I've ever heard. I didn't understand what the hell was going on. I didn't, I didn't, it was alien music. Okay. So I see the guy the next day and I'm like, oh my God, I am completely in. Like, what is the deal with this music? Like, but here's the funny thing. It sounded like a couple of different things. Like it didn't all sound like one band. And also I heard the scratching of what sounded like a needle on a record on these, on these recordings. And I'm like, what was the deal? Did you guys make like a single? Like what I hear like, a, he's like, and he just dodged that. So I go and meet with this guy in his, in his garage with his band. And these were the weirdest dudes I've ever seen. Like the singer had his hair uh, bleached on one side and black on the other side, slick back, kind of like when Mick Karn did that yes. from Japan. And, um, and the drummer had um, a suit that was spray painted silver and um, then I, I was like, okay, let's play that first song on the, and the, and then this band couldn't play to save their life. It, it was not the same people, <laughs> but I was already so kind of drawn in by how weird and art this was like art damage um, that I, I stuck with this crew of people and I did quit my band and alienated myself from all of my old ways. Okay. Right. This was like a, this was like a crazy step forward. And it would have been like joining like the Mekons or something, you know? And, um, and so I, uh, and so like a few months into it, I'm like getting kind of frustrated because these guys can't do what that tape illustrated. And I was like, Casey, what's the deal with that, man? He's like, he's like, you idiot. That was the monochrome set. Right. And on the, and on the other side, it was the scritty politty four a sides that bibliotech thing which is one of my favorite eps that's ever been made ever in the history of time and those were the two things that he represented as his band <laughs> and so and so so i was totally hoodwinked 
but I sort of didn't care because I had this like new information. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that, that, that set, that, that was like the moment that you sort of your initial question could, because that set me on this course of like, of, of really, um, seeking out the obscure and, um, and I just fell in love with everything that rough trade was doing, um, this, you know, starting in the late seventies and, um, and I just, yeah, I just lost my mind with that stuff. So I continued, it was, so it was kind of like this punk rock slash, um, art, art, new wave, um, thing that really, that is really like my awakening. Yes. Because, because it's a kind of interesting because, because I was, you know, I was born 64. So, um, I was a bit too young for punk, really, and also I come from the countryside, and frankly, punk didn't sort of get to our neck of the woods for quite a few years, and then by then it had completely yeah. finished. So that, you know, you you were not on the scene at all. Well, no one was on the scene where I came from. And then, it, you know, then we had that post-punk period with, like, Magazine, Gang of Four, Pill, you know, those really yeah. quite scratchy and, and quite sort of in the fall with Marky Smith. But then there was that kind of the birth of kind of, the, I suppose that's more indie sound and there had been, you know, Big Country, Simple Minds, U2, Psychedelic Furs. But then it was kind of 83 when the Smiths appeared. They definitely right. felt like another, something had jolted. I suppose you have the people who are like, the you know, the, the, the early kind of movers and shakers, you know, and, and obviously most of those, quite a few of those bands went on to be huge like U2, but... When the Smiths came, there suddenly felt like a really independent scene in the UK. I mean, did that did that sort of get into your? Were you aware of that kind of sudden change in movement? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, the the sort of second group of things that you mentioned ended up being my favorite. Uh, you know, the the magazines and the um, and Wire and um, you know the Fall. I, I I just devoured all of those bands. Um, and, um, but yeah, when the Smiths came out, I, I kind of, I didn't totally, totally get into the Smiths. Um, I, in fact, I remember an article that was probably in the enemy. Um, and it said, it was like, you know, these two new bands, it was a big feature on the Smiths and then a little band called the Farmer's Boys. <laughs> my God, the Farmer's Boys. And I lost my mind over the Farmer's Boys, and I didn't lose my mind over the Smiths, which I think is hilarious. Um, I loved um, the in the country record by by the Farmer's Boys. I loved the kind of the kind of really twee thing that was happening, and I I, I got really into um, a band called Care, which was uh, from from Liverpool. Right. Um, Ian Brody was in Care, um, okay, and then Paul. Oh man, what's his name? He Paul was in, later had the Wild Swans. Oh, um, Paul Simpson. Yes, Paul Simpson. I loved, and and this was like the kind of the fayest stuff that there was. But I I just totally got into that. I got really into the associate the associates. Yep, even the vocal, oh. even that that e- e- even the insane manic uh, uh, amphetamine vocal. Like I just was like, this is well. I loved that record with Club Country. Um, yes. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I got really into that stuff. I got into the pale fountains, um, the, the early pale fountains, like the, um, uh, what's the name of that song? It's like a super, uh, bombastic, like sixties production. Um, Oh God, there's uh, something like something in the palm of my hand, but I can't quite remember. Is yeah, it the pale I, fountains? Is it Michael Head who's in the pale? I'm getting confused. That's correct. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. God, I have to say, my my, it's quite hard. I'm not even being able to Google this at the same time. But there's something. One of my favourite songs is something like the palm of my hand. But um, oh, oh no, the one I'm thinking of is called Thank You. Oh right, thank you. My God, there's there's a lot to <laughs> remember that. Yeah, and then and then I got really really into Ian McNabb and the Icicle Works. Right. Well, God, you really was... were going around Liverpool and Manchester here, weren't you? Yeah, it's true. Um... <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, so, I, the, so the Wild Swans are a fascinating band because they got together, Paul Simpson and various other members. And then, because I'd done an interview with Paul and it's quite interesting and um, he kind of has a bit of a break and the rest of the band then become the Lotus Eaters with a right. different, you know, basically with a different singer. And they have that massive hit, the, you know, first summer of you, the first oh, summer. Oh, so, so see, that was, um, that was, didn't even make a, a blip here. So yes. that was a hit over there. Oh, it was it was kind of you know you well I didn't like it which is but it was just top you know it was on the top ten or top twenty for for a for a summer if not a year and you couldn't get wow. away from it and then I think that splits and they become back to the wild swans so it was quite an interesting sort of yes the ins and outs of being in a band it's a tricky one but Paul's still doing stuff and he's you know he's still kind of trying to make music so it's quite an interesting period that's crazy yeah. It is amazing. But then, yeah, it was quite interesting because a lot of those bands are part of that Liverpool scene and there would have been a nightclub or a venue called Eric's and there was right. been a band called Big in Japan and there was all these people like Holly Johnson who was in Frankie, there's Ian Brody, yep. there was a woman called Jane Casey, there was Bill Drummond who went on to do um, Zoo Records that, that was very mm -hmm. hip and happening and then KLF and all that kind yeah, of stuff yeah he's the so, KLF guy yeah. so he's the KLF <laughs> so there was a lot of people coming out of that sort of alternative scene I think there was a band everyone loves but no one's really heard of called Death School because they, they were very influential I... but they didn't really <laughs> manage to um, record anything that broke them but every you know they're a real cult Betty band. Bright yes well so, I remember Death School because I had the record and then also the three when I joined the three o'clock, guess who produced the three o'clock? Ian Ritchie, the sax player in Deaf School. Oh wow, <laughs> this is excellent. And then crazy? there was another band. God, this is really nerdy, isn't it? But there was another band called the Yachts, who were very big in the, the, the UK, uh, in the USA. They really weren't big, but then they became It's Immaterial. Um, oh wow. Yeah, so one of the members is in, in It's Immaterial, and bizarrely has just brought out a new album, which was actually what he had recorded in 1991, but they put it in a box and forgot about it, and they just brought it out September this year. So there you go. It's got to be done. That's that's crazy, yeah. I but mean, actually, I I've, got, I've got a great... I'll, I'll just tell you this story, but he was telling me, because when they did the single Driving Away From Home, they went to America to do it, and they got the producer, who was that guy from The Talking Heads, Jerry somebody... Jerry Harrison. Yeah. So they really hated the production that he was doing on there. So during yeah. the day they were doing it, and then at night Jerry would leave, and they, you know, got the assistant or the junior and said, "Look, can we record it the way we like it? Because actually we don't really like his version." So when they got back to the UK, they they put their version out and not Jerry's, and I don't think he was happy. He was amazing. Happy. Yeah, that's that's a pretty big slight. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit like you know we don't really want you know, but they had to kind of pretend they were yeah that's great, Jerry, that's great, and we're not going to use this. But when he goes for oh, tea, yeah. we'll we'll sort of keep recording and we'll do the version that we like. So um, yes, there that's you amazing. go. It is quite funny, but yes, the Liverpool scene, obviously, yeah. So you were getting a hot a hot line from from um, Liverpool and England and Farmers Boys who are on the east coast with the because there was three bands in that scene. There was like the Farmers Boys, Serious <laughs> Drinking. And the Hicksons, who was sort of all part of that kind of Norwich 
UEA scene. So um, mm. there you go. So so when you were forming your band, um, yes. So were the Three O'Clocks the first kind of main major band that you were on or in? Um, in a way. So, I, yeah, so I, um, I, let's see, I was still in high school and my friend, uh, rang me and he said, he asked if I want, if I knew this band community FK, which was a, um, pretty scary kind of goth band that was pretty big in LA, like, like Rodney Bingenheimer would play them. And, um, they were, you know, uh, playing, you know, thousand plus seat places. And, um, so I went down and, and, uh, I was 17 and, um, I went down and I, but I got it. And I think it was because the singer's wife, wife said, Oh, he looks like kind of like David Bowie. Cause I had like a kind of a mullet and, um, <laughs> and, and so, so they, so they put me in the band, but my friend Mark who had called me about that said, do not tell them that you're, tw- that you're 17, say that you're 21 because the singer at the time was like 34 and Mark was like, he'll, he'll have a conniption fit if he finds out that you're 17 years old. So I lied about my age and I got in that band and, um, we played, I played two shows with them before they just imploded. Um, and it's an interesting story. One of the, one of the rehearsals, um, beggars banquet came down. Um, and the guys came from England and came down to see us rehearse to maybe sign the band. This was my first lesson in what not to do (laughs) because I watched the singer just completely alienate these guys and, and put them on edge. And he's like, so what are you going to, you know, what are you going to, what are you going to make us, you know, are you going to sign us, make us big stars? Like, you know, what? Like, you know, I'm just like sitting there sc- scratching my head. Like, that's not how we do this. I'm pretty sure that's not the way you do it. And, um, and, uh, so that, that, that disappeared, that opportunity. Um, and then we played, uh, a show opening up for the Jesus and Mary chain. This would have been maybe their first U S tour. This is when the Reed brothers still played with their backs to the audience and Bobby was on drums and we opened up for that show. And amazingly, when, when Bobby and Ennis asked me to play bass on their record, two of their records, when, when Manny went back to doing the, the Stone Roses. Um, so I was the bass player on two Primal Scream records. Um, I was driving down to the studio one day and I, I, forgotten i'd become good friends with bobby and and i'd forgotten to tell him that i we met when i was like 17 <laughs> and uh so i came down to the studio and i'm like bobby bobby do you do you remember a show in like 84 where you guys played in san diego and he's like oh, i think i remember that gig and i'm like i, I was in the opening band <laughs> like, this, <laughs> like this is like the craziest like full circle thing um and um excellent god that's so that, quite that, that's quite something that is an amazing isn't that, isn't that amazing yeah it's quite... um and so then i uh so so that yeah but that band was yeah it was called community fk with uh, a community with a k in the beginning instead of a c and um it was a kind of kind of scary like sort of joy division killing joke uh but with a guy that's like a bowie bowie obsessed guy singing um so it's like you have it's like very 
very passionate. <laughs> and um, and uh, then that, you know, when that when that band was just totally dysfunctional, I, I split from that. And, and um, and then I saw an ad in a in a local um, in an L.A. Um, uh, kind of classified ad paper that said three o'clock looking for guitar player. And I was like, three o'clock. Oh, my God. I used to love the three o'clock. Like my my band in high school ended up covering a couple of three o'clock songs. So I was a, a big fan, and um, I called the number, and it was Danny Benair, the drummer, it was his direct direct home phone number, and we talked for about two hours, and he was really into all that English stuff too, like uh, you know, Care. We talked about Care, and we talked about um, you know, uh, Teardrop Explodes and all that stuff, and um, so I got in that band. That's how that happened, and um, you know, un- unfortunately, you know, I entered that band when they were on their last legs, and I really feel like the choice of producer was was definitely not not the right choice because um, he kind of took this this you know s- sweet, slightly scrappy, you know, like they can all play. Michael had a really interesting voice, <clears throat> and he um, in- insisted on. Um, using all uh, drum samples and even some of the bass is performed on a keyboard um, by him. And I just was like watching this happen going, guys, 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 this is the wrong kind of record, man. This sounds like a, it sounds just like this awful, like late eighties, like, a, you know, like escape club or, uh, you know, I, I don't even know how it's like Thompson. You know, I, I like the Thompson twins, but it kind of sounded like that kind of production. Yes, well, the, well, the 80s were quite interesting, in, well, for the UK anyway, because you had hair metal, and um, obviously that was huge in LA, wasn't it? But we had, yeah. you know, we had the mainstream charts, which had that Trevor Horn-esque sound, and we had that kind of, I suppose, it started a bit with that, um, I suppose, new romantic stuff, and then it got into Dire Straits, Spandau Ballet, Duran Duran, that teen, you know, Tina Turner, that that kind of really yeah, bang. Yeah, exactly. But, so you had exactly. that on one like the... side. You had that on one side, and then you had the indie scruffy kids who were all dysfunctional and, you know, didn't get out much and sat in bedrooms writing poetry and feeling angsty, which was where one one sort of hovered towards. Because and then you had goth as well, crisis. So there was a lot going on in the eighties. So yeah, so it was kind of weird that you. So your producer sort of thought, look, let's let's get you into the charts then, rather than. Yes. Yeah, it exactly. It, it just felt like the whole thing had like a dollar sign um, as a motivation as opposed to making a great record. And and, and uh, also, interestingly, we were signed to Paisley Park by Prince. Yes. So that, so you wait, because before that you had Ian Brody, though, didn't produce one of well, your... Well, Ian Brody produced one of the three o'clock records, but I wasn't on that record. That was the one right before the one I'm on. The one I'm on, Ian Ritchie from Deaf School produced. Right. And that, that's the guy that that's the guy that kind of I think he just kind of killed the band. Um, he, <laughs> you know, he, he he wanted it to be. You know, to me, like the biggest uh, the, the 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 darkest force of the late '90s was a production team called Stock Aiken and Waterman. Yep, there you go. <laughs> and these guys, man, they just had this machine. It's like I think it was like Rick Astley, you know, like that kind of stuff. Kylie. Kylie, exactly. Jason Donovan, yeah, it was. They were was, a hip it, machine, weren't they? They were. They, they were. Hip, yeah. yeah, it was. Um, and it was just. It was just a terrible, like, kind of quantized, um, mechanized sound, and um, partially due in part to to the um, to the technology that was new at the time, um, but which was something really to avoid. I mean, 
I'm a big proponent of avoiding all new technology in, while when it's new because everyone's using it. And so everything then sort of sounds the same. Yes. And, you know, so it's like, man, the idea of like taking a cool band like the three o'clock and not letting the drummer play and not letting Michael play play his bass hardly. Uh, it was all just like on an Akai sampler. And I was just like... Oh God, what are we doing? Yes. But nobody would listen to me because I was the I was a teenager. You were too. And... But it was but it's interesting on on that point because I I realised that that during the eighties, um, a lot of the, the established and sort of the point that you made there, a lot of the established artists from the seventies, it's kind of hard to keep in the kind of zeitgeist moment. And I suppose looking at David Bowie, you know, he did all that stuff in the seventies, which was amazing apart from the very early album, but that was all right, you know. But he did an album a year, didn't he? Relocated several times, produced two albums for Iggy Pop and then Lou Reed. So pretty good CV on that front. Got into the 80s. He did Let's Dance, which was all right. It was almost kind of before the explosion. But then, bizarrely, he then seems to start to copy what is happening rather than doing his own thing and being out there at the front. So, you know, he bring, brings out Tonight and then he brings out Never Let Me Down, which were like, ooh, that's kind and of... Gl- and Glass Spider, which is the and, worst one, I think. And the, gla- and the Glass Spider tour. And it was like, suddenly... But right. then he wasn't the only one. There was... If you look at people like, you know, Robert Plant's solo stuff and that production sound, or you listen to Rod Stewart's production sound, you know, I mean, whether you like them or not, you realise in the 70s, you're thinking, yeah, not bad. In the 80s, you think, oh, my God, you know, where did you go with that? You know, it's like, plus the fashion isn't isn't very complimentary as well. And when you see the, and then you see the videos and you think, yeah, you know, they, and I always remember Rod Stewart being interviewed. And it was funny when they got to the 80s, I thought, you know, he was going to say, look, I don't want to talk too many about much about my, you know, the wives and girlfriends. But you kind of wanted to skip the 80s because of, of the music. You know, he's like, oh, can we just skip this bit? And it wasn't about, you know, I think he was more embarrassed than that, than his kind of, you know, marriage record really so it was quite interesting I think Bowie did the same I, 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 I still think that Tin Machine was like I've got to do something and I've got to just you know I've got to do something quite drastic and Tin Machine was it which was fine you know he had to God knows what yeah. you do after Glass Spider Tour and Never Let Me Down. <laughs> you know, it was a very difficult one to know because he's just kind of he's got himself into a a, 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 a cul-de-sac, which is not good, is it? It's like yes. No, and and you, you make a very interesting point when you say, um, you know, this this is a guy that is a is a, a maverick of mavericks um, and a, and a trailblazer, and then all of a sudden he's not he's not leading, he's following. Yes, and. And he's got, yeah, and he's got Pete Frampton on guitar and, and Frampton looks like he's kind of come from the 70s rock school of bad poses. And it's a bit like, okay. I know, I, I actually saw that tour. I did um, too. And it was so confusing. Did, yeah. <laughs> it was like... They all, I, had like mom, they all had mom jeans. Oh dear, I know. They all had the, the, the acid wash. Yes. Oh God, oh, yeah. Oh my Lord. And, um, yes, it was... It was it was like a Tony bad. Basil v- doing the choreography. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it was a bad sort of Cirque du Soleil production with a sort of a David Bowie cover band, wasn't it? Or or a sort of you know, it wasn't. Yeah. yeah. But then you know, so he had to get you know in in touch with the um what Iggy Pop's old band and say let's 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 go back to being rock and roll for a bit and anyway it all worked out so it was it was fine. But yes, so yeah. yes, your your uh, your producer killed the band. <laughs> I think so. I do. I, do. I think so. Um, <laughs> Excellent. So yeah, and then uh, after that, um, well, uh, oddly enough, as well in that same classified paper, um, before I had seen the three o'clock, 
um, ad. I had put an ad in there. Um, I had I had gone to Alaska to work in a in a cannery, and um, I did that for the summer when I was seventeen. And when I came back, I was just I had a, a new fire under my tush to uh, to get a band going, and um, I put an ad in that paper, and I got one phone call on my ad, which and and this is an interesting point point about David Bowie as well because in that ad I put. I said uh, something to the effect of multi-instrumentalists looking for like-minded individuals um, to form a, a band um, based on XTC, David Bowie, and the Blue Nile. Mm. Okay, I was really, really into that uh, first Blue Nile record, um, A Walk Across the Rooftops. And um, w- it's funny because those three things are almost unrelated, but um, I got one... I got one phone call, and what's interesting about that is David Bowie hadn't yet really gone away from sort of like the conscious public consciousness. No. So, so people at the time weren't like digging through his golden decade, um, which is the seventies, and that's what I was talking about. I wasn't talking about current David Bowie. I was talking about you know Low and and Ziggy and and Hunky Dory, and. Um, but I only got one call on that, which, you know, if you put an ad out now saying David Bowie, you're going to get a ton of calls. Um, <laughs> and the one co- person who called me was Roger Manning, who I later started Jellyfish with. Um, and he came over to my house where I was living with my parents, my parents' house, and we played each other some songs on the grand piano. And um, he was like, man, I love your songs and blah, blah, blah. And, and then um, shortly after that, I saw the three o'clock ad. And so I joined at three o'clock and that lasted for about a year. And then I didn't hear from Roger cause I didn't really know him. And then all of a sudden he calls me and he's like, man, um, I've re rejoined forces with this guy I grew up with up in Northern California. And, um, we're, we're not happy with the two other guys in the band and we want to start a band with you. And, um, I said, dude, I'm, I'm in the three o'clock and he's like, what? And, and so that was put on ice, but, um, I remember he sent me some demos that they had done and I was just floored by these demos. And, um, so the three o'clock were touring and uh, you know, all this is way before cell phones. So there's just no way to get a hold of people. You have to go find out where they are Yes, to, to, to go talk to them. And, uh, we're playing in, in Northern California and this guy comes up to me at, at our sound check and he's like, Hey man, I think, you know, our keyboard player. I'm like, who's your keyboard player? And he goes, Roger Manning. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that guy, yeah, the guy that came over, um, a while ago. And that, then he, it turns out his band that he was asking me to join is opening up for us. And I saw, that's the first time I saw Andy playing drums, standing up and singing. And I was like, holy moly, like this, this is a band of like me and him and Roger, we could like destroy if we could get together. And so we kind of like planted the, the seed of, of we're going to do this at some point. And then the tour with the three o'clock ground to a halt and then it was over and I left and um, I called him up and that's how, that's how that, that's how Jellyfish started. Yes. And, um, yeah, and it was interesting was like in 89. Yes, because that's an interesting period because one thing that really happened to a lot of bands in the UK 
I mean, 87, you know, the Smiths, you know, break and that's kind of quite a moment because they'd been so big in that kind of world and had been so dominant and there'd have been a lot of bands around in that genre but they you know as you probably realize that after you've been in the band for about three to five years you know things start to get to quite a a crossroads it's a bit like one of those Jim Jamoose movies or something you know where you get to that crossroads (laughs) it's in black and white as well and it's it's probably in, in sort of Alaska it looks quite grim so things are sort of getting to that crossroad point and 80 yeah so when the Smiths broke the next generation you know bizarrely even though it's only a few years kind of want to start their own you know bands that no or not just want to start but they they want their own sort of bands that they discover they don't want some old band who's been going for five years and you know ecstasy in this country here you know not everyone took it but obviously you know suddenly the new sound was kind of the happy mondays the stone roses the you know primal scream the soup dragons you know that that kind of everybody started not everyone but you know a lot of people were getting into that rave scene so a lot of bands I have spoke to just said you know they were when you know were thinking about what to do on the next album and realized actually we're not into that dance scene and no one cares anymore because our fans have you know have now got to 22 and they're going to want to do other things let alone sort of worry about our next album which isn't going to sound ravey and exciting it's going to sound like five blokes playing guitar still and no one cares about our third album you know there was you know a lot of really good bands were like no one wants our third album do they nope so that's the end of them and then you so you get that dance scene and then you get the seattle scene that comes along which kind of hits it but in the uk we also had that kind of the beginning of of kind of shoegazing so you had the the you know north london world of you know my bloody valentine and lush and oh, yeah. carter and Silverfish and the Faith Healers, and then obviously we had the Pixies throwing muses and stuff on 4AD and sub pop records. So that that was kind of interesting. So when Jellyfish started, this was kind of uh, it was kind of in that period, wasn't it? So did you feel like, Christ, how do we sort of, you know, are we relevant? I suppose. Well, what's what's funny is is I, I think I can well I know I can speak for for the other guys. Um, as far as the impetus of that band and the, and the, you know, our, our, our objective had nothing to do with what was happening. We, it almost felt like doing a little bit of a seventies, um, a, a little bit of a seventies approach actually seemed like the most modern thing we, we could think of. Um, you know, a, a very, very much song, uh, we, we were, were all songwriters in that band and, um, you know, and we were all kind of kind of classic songwriters, for, for lack of a better term. And, um, yeah, I, I would say personally, I never felt like I was a part of any scene um, at, at, in those in those days. I mean, if anything, I was a I was a club kid that was into punk rock and and into new wave and and a little bit of a little bit of a new romantic um leanings but for the most part just kind of a a grubby la downtown club going kid and um but i also loved harry nelson <laughs> and i loved you know burt backrack and i loved all this stuff that uh certainly wasn't being played at a party with my friends <laughs> no, <laughs> you no, know not we'd, at we'd all. be playing we'd be playing killing joke um but uh but uh, yeah, and, I, and then when I met those other two guys, I, the, these were like really the first kindred spirits that not only had a similar 
diverse interest, but also could play their asses off. Like we were all really good musicians and that was something that was hard to find. That's hard to find no matter what, when you're a kid, but it's also really hard to find when, when that wasn't the focus of most people starting bands. I mean, most people starting bands, it was kind of still, to be honest, at least here, it was still kind of like punk fallout. So it was like this whole, like, it doesn't matter if we can play, just, just mean it. And it's like, I love that aesthetic and I have that aesthetic, but I can also play. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, like my bands, when I was in high school, I was actually underplaying. I was almost, almost pretending to be more crude than I was because I thought that was cool. Yes. And, and then when I met the Andy and the, the jellyfish situation, it was like, no, we're, we're going to flex our muscle and we're going to flex our songwriting muscle and our performing muscle and our, uh, and the, and the sonics of it. <laughs> and, um, you know, so that's, that's, that's what that band was to me. It was like the first time I had met people who were, you know, kind of like me where they would have been the best musician in their group of friends. Yes. And, you know, so there was three of us and uh, we had found each other and we were young. I was 20, I was 21 in that band. And, um, and, uh, so yeah, that was, but that was interesting because I also, yeah, I mean, I remember we, man, we were like on our own Island as far as like what you asked about, you know, what, what we were concerned with about fitting into something or whatever. We, we, I mean, just look at us. I mean, we, we, we were like raiding the, the Goodwills, uh, all over the country on tour, finding the most insane stuff to wear. Um, I remember some, some people at the time were like, man, it's so lame that the record company makes you dress like that. It's kind of takes away from the music. And I'm like, do you actually think that a record company would tell us to dress like this? Like, are you kidding me? This is like commercial suicide. How, how, how we dress is actually such a distraction that you're either going to love it or you're, you're not going to love it or like it. You, you might've loved it or liked it if we were just wearing t-shirts and baggy jeans and looking down at our feet. But because we're jumping around in like, you know, happy face jeans and, um, <laughs> and fur coats and dresses like, dude, this is like, this is, this is edgy. Um, <laughs> and uh so no that was not a record company idea just to clear that up yes. uh, once and for all and had you, had you had you sort of been a little bit influenced a little bit um i mean because the cover has a sort of a prince-esque quality doesn't it um all around the world and there was also the other one love sex no it wasn't really love sexy was it but but there was a sort of a bit of a i suppose a bit of a fantasy fantasy yeah druggy i mean I, I, we never we never talked about prince um it, I mean, for us, it was uh, literally our our influences uh, visually were coming from um, Willy Wonka, yes. and they were they were coming from, um, you know, uh, weird weird ch children's um, TV shows that we all grew up with, like uh, Lidsville, um, Josie and the Pussycats, the cartoon, um, all of this kind of like Hanna Barbera, um, you know, Sigmund and the Sea Monster. All, the, all that stuff was like our kind of mutual meeting ground. It was like, let's do something like totally, just totally insane um, and uh, see what happens. And then it's partnered with this music that's actually very serious. 
and uh, ser- serious lyrical content played with you know passion and 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 depth and and then we come out in these insane outfits and it was just kind of we we all kind of just decided that we didn't want to to be on stage with our butt crack showing and a white t-shirt just like a like a plumber like we wanted to uh do something extraordinary and Mm -hmm. something like really entertaining and uh but on a but on a bubblegum and 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 shoelace uh budget because we didn't have any money so we couldn't have like a crazy light show or a stage setup, but we still made a stage set with a bubble machine and a and a white picket fence. Uh, this is all like kind of jabs and and humorous kind of almost like Dada jabs at sort of normalcy. And, yes. And uh, so that that's and that's you what got all that was. and you got some massive to- uh, support slots as well. So you're starting to sort of you know play in front of some big you know, audiences in big arenas as well, which must have been quite a jump. Because I noticed with a few bands, you know, they go from the sort of like the art centres, which have got, you know, two, three hundred people to a bigger, you know, the fifteen hundred, three thousand. And then there's that kind of jump. And unless you are a really good performer like Prince or possibly, I don't know, one of those, you know, people who, who's got the personality. I have seen some bands that have just kind of gone from quite small to quite big, but they don't really still have that personality to really pull it off. They're not that great festival band who, who really can play in front of that massive kind of field of people. So how did you right. sort of cope quickly, you know, having to... Oh, well, it just all seemed like, a, like it, I mean, it was very exciting, but it all just seemed kind of like, like the natural progression, the way, the way it should go down. Um, we, you know, I, I loved playing small clubs i still do but i but i really get off on having some room to to jump around and roll around the ground and and just spaz out and that's what um that's what you know these bigger shows afforded us um yeah i mean we toured when we toured the black crows in 1990 everybody was calling that the beatles opening up for the stones tour (laughs) (laughs) and and, uh, you know, then we got that support slot. I think actually before the Black Rose, we did the, we did like a month with World Party, and um, that was fantastic. Um, and we all lo- loved that band. And then uh, I guess the culmination was the big show at Wembley with, um, you know, NXS as the headliner, but it was Debbie Harry, um, Hot House Flowers, Jesus Jones, um, and we were the very first on that bill. So we played at like three or something. And I remember everybody saying, everybody around us saying, hey, you guys, okay, so it's a huge place. You know, you all, we all know this place from, you know, Live Aid and, and Genesis and blah, blah, blah. But there's not going to be that many people there. So don't get, don't, don't be, don't be freaked out when you go out there and it's like, you know, there's like a smattering of people. Man, we walked out there and it was packed and everybody came early. And I remember subsequently hearing that the um the bbc was or the, the radio stations were saying get there for that first band because that band is gonna blow your mind and um in fact somebody sent me some recorded audio of a dj talking about the, us opening that show and to get the, make sure you get there early so we walk out there and i almost had a heart attack i was like just because the sound of that many people screaming is something that you can't i mean it's like a sounds like a 747 taking off over your head and um, yeah, it was phenomenal. So I, I love the, the bigger things. I, I, you know, I'm not sure if 
if just in general every, the the record that we made translated to that sort of thing because it didn't really have any big like everybody now you know it didn't have any of that kind of uh cliched but effective performance technique you know what i mean yes absolutely we, we didn't we didn't have any of that so i feel like we just kind of plopped were plopped on the stage and did our thing and then scrambled off and people were like what the hell was that and some people were like that's the best thing I've ever seen, and some people were like, "Okay, who's next?" So. <laughs> yes, well, it's a, it's a, it's a, probably a bit of a strange gig, isn't it, all round for everyone? But I have to say, the the audience must have been shattered by the time um, the the encore for In Excess, if they if they'd peaked that early in the afternoon and still had another seven hours. So um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a long night. That was a very long night. But then, <laughs> in the honeymoon period, you you part with the band, don't you? Which is quite drastic. Yes. Which is which is kind of one of those moments. Which is, um, did you see it coming? Oh yeah, yeah. So so the the so the the um, you know the the dark side of the band is that uh, this the singer Andy and I never got along. Um, like we we had no friendship, and um, he he was very um, like standoffish with me, and just kind of didn't didn't really treat me like a peer. As much as I know now, he know he knows he should have, but he but he just didn't for whatever reason. And um, so I was never that happy in that band. So I was always kind of plotting my exit. Um, and um, I basically it came to a head when um, I had met a, a girl in Los Angeles where I lived, because uh, I was kind of living in San Francisco, but I also still lived in in LA. Um, and I just immediately, we just hit it off and I moved in with her. And I remember I was just kind of like dreading the phone call from those guys to start the next record. And then I finally, you know, got the phone call and they're like, Hey man, you know, we're ready for you to come up and weave your, uh, weave your magic on all these songs that we've written. And I said, well, you know, I've got a bunch of songs too. And they're like, yeah, we know, we know, we love your songs, but it's just, this just not right for this band. And I was like, uh, and and the reasoning behind that is what because of course it's of course it works in this band but um they just had kind of like this uh stranglehold on the on the on the songwriting aspect of the band and they weren't willing to uh, share that with somebody that they should that they should have shared that with and i again i know that they both <laughs> regret not being open to the three of us kind of being equals so I, uh, yeah, so I just said, well, and then I said, well, you know, I've got these songs, and they said, oh, well, you, you know, you know how we are, and I said, well, you know how I am, and my middle, my middle finger's sticking up right now, so I quit. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's how I quit the band. It was over the phone, and that's exactly what I said. Excellent. That's, that's and, quite nice. Were, were they, they must have been shocked, because they obviously didn't think, look, he's going to be leaving, this is going to be the orc. They obviously realized that you were going to bounce back. Bang. Well, I think so, but I've I've also heard Andy say uh, fairly rec fairly um, uh, soon after I left the band, I've, I've I've heard him say that he was always afraid I was going to leave, and that's one of the reasons why he kept his distance from me because he thought that in his heart he knew that I was a solo artist and not a not a band not a guy that would share the whole thing. Yes, um, and, and because I can play everything as well, um, and you know, th those guys aren't, aren't like that. They can't play everything. And most, most people can't. So I can actually do a one man band thing without using a computer to, to tidy it up. And so I, 
yeah, I think he always knew that I was, I had one foot out the door and, um, you know, the sad part of that is that if he had just sort of become my friend, <laughs> made a, put a tiny bit of effort in, into that part of it, that I, I probably would have stayed. Yes. But, um, but there was just sort of like no love lost, you know, yeah. when I left. And are you sort of, when you sort of reflect on just that and life, do you, do you sort of realize, because I was sort of thinking about certain bands who I've grown to respect more than love, but I, just because I kind of realize they've got their eye on the big, prize you know and I'm thinking I suppose especially you too really you know like they were nothing special in the 80s that's a bit of a sweeping statement but I didn't think <laughs> they were that amazing but you know I thought god the Smiths the Smiths amazing in every record well not the first one I thought that was a bit rubbish but <laughs> after the first album I thought wow they're really getting into their stride and then you know everything happens and it breaks and then other bands they just seem to be able to say can we just have a quick chat about this look let's not screw this up because you know, this is quite a good number. So can we just deal with the little problems and, you know, just keep this gig going? Do you, I mean, you know, do you sort of realise that, you know, when you look at certain bands, you think, God, they've got longevity, but then you're thinking, yeah, they just don't want to balls it up, don't they? You know, yeah, I mean, for sure. To me, the, to me, the key of, of longevity in, in a band or any kind of relationship is, you know, sort of everybody having, um, everybody having a role in the band that's 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 important and um you know i look at a band like uh, rem who had a certainly a long run um you know one of the main reasons they did that it was because from the very beginning um mike and peter and and um, um and everybody else said, <laughs> <laughs> said, we're gonna we're splitting the publishing four ways so it doesn't matter if mike mills wrote a lot of that stuff it, it, each guy bill um michael Peter and and um, Mike get twenty five percent. That's how you keep a band together. Yes, um, but, inter but interesting though, and I've I've spoke to a few. Um, uh, you know, I suppose it's the person who's written all the songs and do it. And the other night I did an interview with Nigel from Dodgy and. He was getting like got to that point where he wanted he he said, you know, the thing with the band and you can hear this in the interview, he said it was like well, there was this big rug with all these problems under, and, you know, all the stuff was underneath this rug. And one day he pulled the rug away and said, look, actually, let's talk about the publishing because I write all the material and we split it three ways. So. It's kind of, and you know that was the end of the band, <laughs> it like, right? Because it was just like and and uh, yeah, it's a really difficult one because what happens to the person like who, who you know and then there's other people I've spoke to where they said you know I was there trying to write the next album in the studio. They were all you know shopping for nice taps and kitchen accessories with their wives over the weekend, and me trying to say, could we just come back to the studio, guys? You know, let's let's. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's that's the that's the flip side of that, of that <laughs> scenario for sure. I don't care about your taps and the toilet accessories, and I love your girlfriend. I don't really, but I wish you would just leave us alone. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I guess there's no real formula that works, but in the case of Jellyfish, it was certainly, uh, you know, just. Um, I, I didn't have a, a loud, I didn't have a, a loud enough voice in that band. Um, so yeah, I just knew that. I also think it's kind of cool to kind of, to kind of just extinguish something at its, at its potential peak. I mean, I didn't think that band was going to, uh, I knew we were already like tremendously in debt. Um, and, um, I just felt like, 
I just felt like I got to make my own record, my own solo record. And then, of course, I was sidelined from doing that by starting the Grays. But that was a whole nother. It's just kind of a misstep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some brilliant things on that record, I think, but you know, with with hindsight. But um, man, that was a uh, that was a a, a a band of people that shouldn't be in a band together. Yes, I mean that that came together incredibly quickly and and bizarrely because. Because I did an interview with um, oh the guy from the zombies. Uh, Rod or Colin? Uh, it was it was Colin. Yes, Colin. And yeah. yeah. um, we talked a lot about that famous album Odyssey and Oracle because they yes. they had sort of done all this and went that's brilliant actually we've had enough and then three decades later people keep keep on mentioning this record and then it's like it suddenly comes out again doesn't it and people say you two should get together and start performing because this is an amazing album so obviously you do love to pay homage to these very obscure uh records from decades ago yeah well isn't it i heard that that uh, or i understand that when odyssey and Oracle came out they broke up and then there were bands touring the country playing massive places as the zombies and it wasn't a, it wasn't a single original member oh right did, did you ever hear that god i get a bit confused with these some of those stories i mean that it, is just that is phenomenal that there were like these fake bands put together by like promoters to play to to because uh um because uh, time of the season was a massive hit over here. Yeah. So yeah. some some of these uh, inscrupulous, you know, business types were like, "Well, we need a zombies, and if the zombies aren't a band, we're going to make a zombies." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is in, yeah. yes. I mean, I, I sort of didn't realize there was a band in the in the UK in the early seventies called the Rubettes, and um, I just realized because I did an interview with one of the members. But there are three versions of that one band at the moment. Right. That's so funny. <laughs> it is, and there's two versions of Barkley James Harvest as well. So um, yes, you know, the lawyers have wow. a great time. <laughs> yeah, they do. Somebody's making some money. Yes. So the Greys. That was the moment. Yeah. At least you got an album out. Yeah, we got an album out, and um, you know that's um, yeah, it was uh, that was an interesting, just record of four very strong-willed people. Um, you know, it was sort of like four four generals and no no soldiers. Um, and I think in a band you have to have some soldiers. Um, and um, so uh, that yeah, that was just. It's hard to make the record. Um, I, I kind of took that record over because I had been sort of under the thumb of the Jellyfish guys uh, creatively. So when when I got when this band got signed, almost almost like against our will, we were just kind of goofing around. And um, these these A&R men, I mean, I was I was there had been like quite a bit of press about me leaving Jellyfish and uh, like a lot of uh, conjecture as to what I was going to do. And um so all of a sudden it was like, well, this is what he's doing. He's doing this band with these guys from Boston. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. no, not, not really. We just got together and just, we were just jamming. And um, like, literally, we just got together to jam. We didn't have a band name. We didn't have a manager. And we were, we were having a, a help from a, a, our lawyer that we only had because he was my lawyer in Jellyfish. And he was like, I'll manage you guys. You guys need a manager. Like, this is, this is happening. And we're like, what? Like, what, what's happening? Like, we don't even have any, we're not even playing any, like, original songs. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so then all of a sudden we're like, well, I got this song. And then we all learned the song. And then, well, I got, um, so three songwriters in that band. 
and we, you know, full, full of this, uh, with our heads full of this, like unexpected, um, attention, we would go and, and have meet we go meet at a bar and talk about like how we're going to do this. And our whole, our whole, uh, concept, which was deeply flawed by the way, but it was that wh- whoever song it is, is the king. Okay. Whoever song it is, is the, is the general. And everybody else in the band are soldiers in that moment. And that general can tell each person, because two of us, especially myself and John Bryan, were, were pretty adept multi-instrumentalists. So I could tell the drummer, Dan, who's a great drummer, but I could tell him exactly what I wanted him to do, and he would do it. And same with everybody else in the band. So that just was like, you know, the idea that we're going to, that that's going to be something that continues to function is just so innocent and naive. And what happened was when we, when we made the record, Jack Quigg was like, you know, Hey Jason, I, I like your songs and your voice better than the other guys. So we're going to put another song of yours. So it'll be three, three of each of those guys and four of your songs. And that basically right there was the, was the tipping point. And that's when everything just was like, went south Mm. and it was was such a simple little seemingly inconsequential thing it's like yeah i've got these four songs and and uh it was like there everybody loves these songs so why not um put those four on the record and those guys were like this is supposed to be a democracy and now now you're the leader (laughs) and it's like well if you follow me a little bit we we might this might go somewhere but you know i wasn't happy with with the, the band dynamic either so that was just kind of like a a weird thing but again like if i put that record on i mean it's got a lot of bittersweet uh memories but i think it's kind of a tremendous record and i love the way it sounds i think jack did a fantastic job mixing that record yes absolutely and then you went full-on prince didn't you on the next one because you <laughs> I, well exactly i mean that's that's see that's what i've always been doing like you know even in my tenure in all these bands i was always um, home recordings like like a madman like I have so many uh, cassette four tracks of songs that nobody's ever heard and and also versions of songs that people have heard that I later re-recorded um, so I was always like no I knew in my heart that the only way I'm really gonna be happy is if I can truly make a solo record and so um Interestingly enough, it's not, not, not a lot of people know this, but when the Greys disbanded, we were on the road and we all just kind of like, let's just stop. What are, what are we doing? This sucks. <laughs> and and uh, our manager was there. And uh, so was our, our, uh, our record company guy. And they said, well, Jason, will you make another Greys record? If John leaves, will you make another Greys record with Buddy and Dan? We'll give you like anything you want. And I was like, uh, maybe, but here's what I want. I want to go into the studio when we get back and I want to make a solo record. I mean, I want to make a cover record solo. And they're like, sure, you got it. So I book time in the studio. I find an engineer and I go into the studio and I start recording like really, really quickly, like two songs a day. Um, and that's me playing everything on them. So that's like breakneck speed. And I did, that's when I did this record that 
has only seen the light of day as a Japanese import called Everyone Says It's On. And that is, well, oddly enough, what we started talking about in the beginning. That's my homage to a lot of this stuff that influenced me greatly right around that new wave period. So I covered, I covered magazine. I, I covered the soft boys. I covered uh, the monochrome set. Um, I did uh, a Tom Waits song. I did a Joni Mitchell, both sides now, but I made it sound like the, never mind the bollocks. It's like yes. bl blistering. And I did, I did all this stuff. And I remember the, the A&R guy was calling the studio like about halfway through leaving messages like, it's urgent, Jason, call me. And I'm like, never mind, don't, don't worry about it. Keep, just press play. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, fin he finally just shows up and he's, he's like, what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, what do you mean, what am I doing? I'm in here making this record that we agreed that I was going to make. And he's like, you've been dropped from the label. The, the band has been dropped. There is no more, there's no second record. And this record is not going to be paid for. And I'm like, well, instead of panicking, like most people would do, I was like, well, somebody will figure it out. Somebody will pay for it. I'll talk to you later, man. And I just <laughs> kept recording. <laughs> and thankfully I was friends with the studio owner. So he was like, eh, we'll, we'll get it. We'll get sent a PO to somebody. Don't worry about it. I love, I love what you're doing. So I finished this record. Then of course it, it never came out. Um, until it came out in this, on this Japanese thing in about 2001. Um, but yeah, that's pretty funny. Wow, that's so then, amazing. Yeah, so then I got, then I got, I forget how it happened. I had a new manager and he hooked me up with this guy at Electra. And this guy was like, this guy that was like covered in like tribal tattoos. And he was like a real, like, look like a, look like he would kill you. Look like, like a, you know, inmate. And he's like, man, I love you, Jason Faulkner. Like, you're, man, your music. And I was just like, wow, this is a unlikely partnership. Because <laughs> right? um, he looked like he'd, you know, be into, you know, um, uh, something super heavy. Um, but uh, yeah, so I got signed to Electra, or to, yeah, to Electra, and um, that's when I. That's probably the happiest. That those were the happiest days of of my life up to that point. Yes. Um, yeah, I was finally like given the reins to do anything I wanted to. They didn't say get a producer. They said, you can do whatever you want, produce it yourself, whatever you want to do. And um, here's, you know, $200,000. And I'm just like, um, okay. So I kept 75 of it and spent 125 on the record. And um, I, was, I was off and running, or so I thought. But uh, then, the, then that same tribal tatted A&R guy, he got fired the week I started my record. God, it's all so about I, timing. Yeah, so I got handed over to the head of A&R uh, for Electra in New York, who was this woman who was in her 50s or whatever and just did not get what I was doing. Didn't get it. And uh, she was like, she was like all about Ziggy Marley. And <clears throat> so that was just a, a constant battle to be, uh, you know, received correctly and... Uh, just a bunch of weird things happen on that. You know, I, I played a show in New York and, and, uh, and it was solo and it was, a, it was very well attended. And, um, and the, all the, the president of the label and all the, all the different department heads were at that show <clears throat> and I did it solo and the crowd went bananas. They loved it. So afterwards, I'll never forget in the backstage, they're all like, Jason, 
this is amazing. Like you don't need a band. You can do it all. You have the audience and they're pointing at their palm. You have the <laughs> audience right here by yourself. You don't need a band. And I overheard somebody saying, and that's going to be a lot cheaper for us. <laughs> right. And I'm like, no, 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 no. No, I made a record that sounds like a band. doesn't matter that it's all me. It's supposed to rock. This, this needs to rock. This needs to have a band to on, on tour. Mm, I don't think so. And so I basically was denied tour support because they're like, just do those solo shows. They're so good. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> so, so, so the only real touring I did for that record, I did a tiny bit with a band, but the only real touring I did was, uh, was on my own. Yes. And at this stage, I mean, the record industry or the record labels are, are doing well financially, aren't they? This is kind of a golden period for a lot of people because um, I think that, you know, there'd been the CD um, growth that, you know, and, and in the UK, there seemed to be a wash with cocaine and champagne. So there was a lot of people who were looking at the big prizes at this stage. Yeah. And that must have been very kind of influential to all these people who were, yeah, this was kind of just before it all sort of crashes a few years later isn't it really yeah I, I caught the very tail end of the music business at, as it had been since its inception really um at least since the 70s with the, with the amounts of money being thrown around i mean I, I i did catch the tail end of that i remember scoffing at a publishing deal offer for a hundred thousand hundred and fifty thousand dollars and i was like are you kidding me hell no and i'm like if somebody offered me a hundred fifty thousand dollars now <laughs> for my publishing for for three records please because then you're also going to be, you're also going to be working it. You're going to be trying to get it placed and things. And yes. when you don't do the deal, yeah, you 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 have to do all that yourself, which is virtually impossible. Because yeah. uh, no, nobody wants to talk to the artist. They they want to talk to a, somebody they have a relationship with that's a business person. That then they can ask them for a favor later as well. That's just all all how it works. So, yeah. hey, you know what? I'm so sorry. I I just looked at the time. Can can we can we continue this? And that is the end of part one, part two, soon to follow. Anyway, a big thank you to Jason Faulkner for giving me the time for that interview. And if you want to know any more information, Google Jason Faulkner, Jellyfish, The Greys. And also he has got a website. Do check that out as well. But anyway, look, this has been David Eastall. I've already said that. Um, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do see 86 show. And also these have all been, these being uh, the interviews have been all ar archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. Check them out. They might just change your life. And there's a lot of them. Any indie band you're interested in, it's all there and much more. Anyway, look, have a great week.